All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. Today we're going to go a step backwards in the chronology of our show to talk again about Microsoft as well as the birth of online advertising. Because today we actually have somebody who's uniquely qualified to talk about both. When Steve Goldberg joined Microsoft in the mid-90s, he became the first hire of the Microsoft Advertising Division. This is right around the time that all of Microsoft is getting internet religion, and Goldberg was brought in to create the advertising infrastructure that would fuel Microsoft's first forays into the consumer web. He was there at the launch of such projects as MSNBC, Slate, Expedia, and MSN The Portal. You might have heard in the news in the last month or so that Microsoft recently finally abandoned all of the advertising efforts that essentially we're going to talk about in this episode. So Steve goes into fascinating detail about Microsoft's relationship to the advertising industry and Microsoft's strategic goals generally. But we also speak more broadly about online advertising in general because Steve was also one of the founders of IAB, that online advertising trade association slash standards body that to this day is such a guiding force for the online advertising industry. So this is the second wide-ranging, utterly fascinating episode in a row. Like last week, it's more than an oral history, more than a career retrospective. It's an utterly fascinating symposium on tech and advertising and everything. So, as I know you will, Please enjoy this conversation with Steve Goldberg. Steve Goldberg, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up here in New York City. Uh, we always like to start with like that little bit of background. Um, Nothing much happened. I grew, up, <laughs> I grew up here in New York City, went to college here in New York City, and then, then things started to happen. You went to Columbia, and uh, you, you got a BA in, in English. Yep. Did you have any idea what you were... Nope. No, no idea what I, career. Originally, I was going to work in television production, and um, some very smart people told me to work on the advertising side, and so I ended up 
in the early 80s on a set of media jobs, buying and selling television media, um, which was a great career and um, because it really taught me the business. And then that sent me off to uh, the the entertainment side of the house where I worked at ABC as an executive. Well, let's, so you're at Young, Rubicam, uh, Ketchum. Yep. And so you're doing, is it TV Media advertising? Buying, yeah, yeah, buying the TV spots. Ads. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then that's how you get introduced to the entertainment side, the creative side. No, I always wanted to be on the creative side. Those okay. two teams don't really have anything to do with right. each other. I, um, I had a really, really good run in the media side, but my passion at the time, I thought, was entertainment. So while I was working on the media side, I just kept going out to California and trying to get a job. Um, there was no introduction, no cross-pollination. It was just, you know, just a guy sending mail. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up switching over to the entertainment side. But I think that the experience that I had working at the agencies and also selling advertising was probably the most informative experience for what I did later on when I got to Microsoft and later on in my mm-hmm. career. So just for the, for the context, we're talking mid-80s here. For example, yeah. when you started ABC? I started at ABC in the mid-80s. Okay. Right. So that's, is that the Cap Cities era? Yes. Yep. Right around the same time. Um, and so how do you then, you said you always wanted to, so you eventually successfully switch over to being an actual program executive. Yep. And... Um, Which was awesome. Mm-hmm. So you're overseeing production of things like Spencer for Hire, MacGyver, all yeah, this good stuff? exactly. And so what, what, what is the job like that? Are You are like, it's not like what they call the, um, what do you call it? The, the, the suit. You're right, the suit. Right, right, right. Yeah, you, um, you read the scripts, you approve casting, you um, listen to story beats, you go to rough cuts, you approve the edits, talk about the scheduling of episodes, um, and that's what you do. It's very hard work. Yeah. Yeah. Why didn't you stay with it? I got fired. And uh, <laughs> so That's my contract did not get renewed. Um, it's what in Hollywood people call creative differences. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is, you know, you learn very quickly in Hollywood that creative differences and personal differences between the head of the network are usually one and the same. And so uh, we definitely did have a creative difference. I was a little more lowbrow and he was a little more highbrow. But as a result, my contract just didn't get renewed. The writer's strike had begun right around that time, so I started my own advertising and PR business just because back then, you know, I had to eat. And it was a pretty successful advertising and PR business. Um, Grew very, very quickly, and uh, I used that money to travel around the world and go to business school. Hmm. Where'd you go to business school? I went to um, what is now called the Halt Institute. Uh It's it's an international business school. It's in Cambridge, Uh and... um, it's, it's very well known amongst international business students, but nobody's ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so um, when you get done with that, it, it, I, you told me off mic yeah. um, that for your thesis, yes. um, you did um, you were investigating the online services mm-hmm. that were there at the time. So we're talking Prodigy, AOL. Tell me, tell me about that. Just, you know, it, this is dumb luck where two interesting things come together and create um, both a career and an opportunity to contribute. I... The topics were in a hat, and um, I went over and pulled a piece of paper out of the hat. I was hoping it would be like something like a, a sports team or whatever. And my topic was consumer online services, and um, you know, I was I was bummed, but I threw myself into it. And at the time, you know, Prodigy AOL had pretty much not that long ago 
just bifurcated from Prodigy, CompuServe was still really just, you know, this kind of excess capacity for this large, you know, timeshare computer. MSN um, was a project that I think was called Chicago that people were working on. And, of course, Prodigy was, you know, kind of a leader. And then during the time that I was doing the investigation, you know, AOL just started to make greater and greater gains. And it was a great experience. You know, I went around, and at the time, you know, there was just no reason why you couldn't just send the mail to, you know, Steve Case or Ted Leonsis and do exactly what you're doing now, just get them on the phone and talk to them. Um, I had senior executives at Microsoft on the phone, and I was able to gather a lot of information and, um, and do this thesis. And, you know, I think it came out pretty well. And um, as a result of that, I knew quite a bit, and I ended up uh, first in a consulting project with Microsoft for MSN, but then very quickly they just hired me. And so I went out to uh, Seattle from Boston. And, uh, Before we get into that, uh, what yeah. was the thesis of your thesis? Where did you see the online services going? Who was going to be the winner? That sort of thing. Well, again, these were online services versus web services. And um, as you and your listeners will discover over the next 40 minutes or so, I'm not smart enough to see around the corner of you know what was going to happen after AOL won. But when we looked at AOL's um, capacity, speed, customer service, etc., we, I understood they were a clean winner. I mean, one example, and this is really, again, part of this whole thing is history, is that I, I did a lot of field work on this, and I sent um, CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL a note that said that I had, you know, a less than great experience because I had a, a 1,200 ballot modem. And Prodigy and uh, CompuServe told me to go out and buy a better modem, mm. whereas the AOL person sent me a long, detailed letter of what I could do. Now, what's funny about that is, you know, when I worked at Microsoft, I, I understood that technology's, um, you know, change was going to be so fast on the hardware side that technically that was the right answer. But for something so fledgling and for something that was not aimed at, you know, that was aimed at the mass market, the AOL strategy was much, much better. Mm-hmm. That kind of answer is the kind of thing that you know my boss Bill Gates would have said, which is just wait for a better computer, <laughs> um, which is right. But right. that's why we thought AOL was going to um, really take off. It seemed like they, they had a better price. They were closer to an all-you-can-eat price at that time, um, better UI, better um, customer service, obviously. Worked better with Windows? Um, I don't remember thinking about that. Um, but, you know, they also just had, they had more massive media partnerships, and their media partnerships were with more mainstream companies. So, you know, where CompuServe might have Nexus, they had Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. So that's why we thought AOL was their winner. So that, that's so fascinating, that just this little, um, this project turns, yeah. in, turns into uh, getting a job at Microsoft. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, what do they recruit you or bring you on for specifically? Like, did- well, Microsoft, when they started um, MSN, and it was still, you know, this was before MSN.com was really going anywhere, and it was, um, you know, it was it was designed to be competitive with AOL and CompuServe, and it was going to be a big thing, you know, and and so um, they just didn't know anything about advertising, you know, they 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 knew that they sometimes bought it, but mm-hmm. not very often. And so approaching agencies or creating a sales force or hiring a rep firm, which was the original plan, 
They just had no idea how to do it. So I came to them and started consulting um, way before MSN was launched, looking at the interface. Because one day people woke up and said, we should put ads in here. Mm -hmm. Originally it was just going to be subscription based. Right. So I was consulting to them and then since this is a podcast, not you know anything else, one day the guy who would be my boss was standing next to me at the urinal and um, he said to me, what do we pay you? And <laughs> I told him and he just said, you know what, you're going to come in here for an interview. And so I did and um, got the job. Hmm. I mean, they sort of made a job for me. It was like product manager or whatever of advertising for MSN. Again, so so we know the context. Do you remember the, the date, like the month? Yeah, I absolutely do. It was, um, that happened in March of 1995. Okay, so that's still six months or so before the launch of Windows 95. Yeah. So when you... I think it launched in August. Right. Yeah. Um, so... Right, we're coming to the 20 year. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. Um, so when you come on board, just a, just a couple of questions, because you're yeah. coming into Microsoft as an outsider. You're yeah. also coming into tech as an outsider. Never had a Windows machine. Um, I'm, I'm not that technically proficient. I'm an Apple guy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've never done a backslash, backslash C prompt or whatever the hell it is. And here I am. I show up in Seattle um, for that job. So your impressions, Terrifying. <laughs> your impressions of like the culture of the either the culture of tech or the culture more maybe more specifically of Microsoft. Oh yeah, my impressions were um, I was blown away. I really was, and I know you know people people um, really have negative opinions about Microsoft or or, or the, the culture there at the time. I was beyond delighted. I mean, I walked in and I, as a consultant, I passed by a room where I saw. Steve Ballmer, who knows what he was talking about, at a whiteboard, and he was running around and gesticulating and writing, and people were taking notes, and I was like, wow, what an environment, you know? Because, you know, ad agencies and media companies, you really have to keep the, you know, the gutters up, like in bowling, and, and here it just seemed open and collaborative, and I'm sure there were people who weren't smart, but I never ran into them, and, you know, people were just you would go to, I mean, to this day, I wish that I could go to meetings and have people be that well prepared and that willing to say that they understood or didn't understand something. Or, you know, now I work with CEOs of, you know, big media companies, no knock on any of them, but they don't even begin to approach the type of precision questioning and quality dialogue that we have. And I think, sorry for the long answer, I think, no, no. I think that the other thing was, even though people make fun of this now, we definitely thought that we were creating something to improve, you know, people's lives. I mean, it, 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 it sounds naive maybe or, or, or stale now, and I know they make fun of it on Silicon Valley, but I went, you know, I didn't go to make the world a better place, mm -hmm. but I went to make media a better place. And everybody that I worked with, we were convinced that, you know, we were going to really changed the way people approached technology and media and entertainment. It's a really exciting time. I, I, I actually think that's an important thing to underline because, you know, we're uh, two generations or so now removed from that. You know, today, all the smart people are at Google or everyone wants to get hired at, at Uber or something nowadays. But in the mid-90s, the only place for smart people to go, where every, every smart person wanted to go, was Microsoft. Yep. And so they, they got all the smart people. Yeah, it was like it was like the movie Field of Dreams. You know, mm -hmm. I, I I felt like I was in Iowa. You know, I, I was I was B 
beyond happy and um, and I, it was such an honor to work with some of these people who have gone on to do so many great things mm -hmm. um, it was, it, you know you, you have good jobs bad jobs better jobs there's nothing's perfect but without a doubt that was you know in, in my life in my career which is now 35 years that was the single most exciting and thrilling um, time so you're you're brought on to start essentially a Microsoft advertising division. Yeah, Is, team, just a little team, or uh, just to explore it or something. You know, give me some names. Like who who was your boss? Who who are some of the? I worked for a guy by the name of Bill Miller, mm -hmm. um, who had been a, a, an executive at um, at um, at Microsoft and the Windows team. He was a really good marketer, um, local guy from Seattle, very very smart and um, and good at what he did. And, you know, he really, he didn't know anything about advertising or anything like that. The other people that were involved at the time, right initially, um, were Patty Stonecipher, um, uh, this woman, Melinda French, who then, you know, went on to become Melinda Gates. Um, early on with MSN, you know, Russ Siegelman was the head of MSN. But things changed a lot. Anthony Bay, who now runs a company out there, was involved in internet-y things. But that was a period of an incredible change, and it was sort of like a carousel of executives. Patty went off to do her thing, and um, Pete Higgins took over the division. Peter Newpert was put in charge of um, who ended up doing drugstore.com, mm -hmm. probably now back at Microsoft, as people tend to be. He was doing MSNBC. They brought in Merrill Brown on the content side, who's now running... Um, a, a, a media program out in New Jersey um, at, I forget the name of that that school, but it'll come back to me, um, and Laura Jennings, who was a, a superior person to work for. She was incredibly strong. And so those were kind of the people. But, you know, quickly we stopped servicing just, I mean, there were a couple of intermediary steps, but we stopped serving just MSN, the um, the, the online service, which is a pretty interesting story how that happened. Um, and we immediately started serving also Expedia and Slate mm -hmm. and, you know, finance. And so I got to work with Rich Barton, who had started Expedia and, of course, now does Zillow. Um, a guy by the name of Ian Morris, who was the CEO afterwards of Home.com. Um, and, you know, um, uh, Mike Kinsley, um, a very talented guy by the name of Rogers Weed. Um, who, who spent about 25 years in Microsoft, and they were all, um, you know, very passionate about what we were doing, very concerned about creating a great experience. So, well, can can we go into some of these projects? Uh, yeah. Just to as a foregrounding, so the sense is is that um, Microsoft wants to do more consumer things that aren't just software packages, right. and the web is going to provide them with this opportunity. Not the web. They're proprietary online. Stores. Okay, all right. So let's start with MSN. Okay, mm -hmm. so initially you're brought in to to bring advertising and, and things like that right. to MSN. And this is hard, right? Because mm -hmm. on the first day I show up and they are showing me something that I've never seen before, mm -hmm. which is their shortcut technology, which was an important part of Windows 95. And you know now we see icons on a desktop and we're all you know plugging in. Well, it, you know. The point was, what they were so proud of was, look, if you love sports, you can go straight to the sports page of MSN. Again, this is before search. Well, you know, at that moment, what you were seeing was the very first kind of disaggregation of a media property. 
Because up until then, if you wanted to sign on to AOL, you had to go through the AOL sign-on screen. And, and I remember looking at a guy, he was a designer, a low-level guy by the name of Eddie Yip, and I said to him, well, you're telling me that this online service you're building does not have a front door. It has like a hundred side doors. And, and the people in the room were like, yeah, isn't that great? And I thought, well, it's not that great for advertising, but mm. I guess it's an interesting user experience. So that was like the very start of it. And that's when I learned this is a hard problem. And, you know, because it's a fragmentation of the media property. And I would say, and that was day one, mm -hmm. right? I would say that even to this day with what I do now, which is, you know, helping big media companies be better at digital, um, that one learning that the media property is disaggregated or fragmented and doesn't travel as a single thing mm -hmm. is, is, is the single hardest and most intractable problem of digital media. And, and right there is where it was born, even though obviously greater strides were taken with hyperlinking, etc. But that was breakthrough stuff. I'm curious because you mentioned, you know, uh, the whoever, the engineer you spoke to, he's like, look, there's all these side doors. Well, I said there were side doors. Right, right, right. He's so he's proud. Like, right, right. So did you, was there a sense that um, you have to educate these people oh, yeah. about advertising? Yeah, there was no media DNA. I remember in my, um, and I should just parenthetically say, is this, I, I think, you know, is this too much about me? Oh, no, no, no. Okay. I remember my very first meeting with Steve Ballmer. I went in and I said, well, if a million people want to buy Office, how many copies do you make? And he said, like a million two. Mm -hmm. you know? And I said, well, if a million people want to buy ads, how many ads do you make? And he said, a million two. And I said, no, you make 999,999 because scarcity is what drives the media market. And even though that you know, we've gone to where targeting, et cetera, et cetera, still the most successful media market is driven by the perception at Google that there could be scarcity. So with the exception of Bob Herbold, who had come over from, I think, Procter & Gamble to be the president of the company, there was no real understanding of the media business. And that was top to bottom. I mean, I, people used to call me the ad guy, which I hated. I mean, I just hated that. But the truth is, for about two years or so, I was the ad guy. And um, you know, people were starting businesses that, you know, we know today. They were starting brands like Expedia and, and you know, MSNBC, and there was zero media DNA. Um, so I would say that 50 to 60% of my time mm -hmm. was familiarizing and educating. But again, these were very smart people, and they got it. They got mm -hmm. it fast. Um, it was cool. Uh, so get me from, you're starting with MSN, the online service, yeah. to all these other projects yeah. like Expedia, because there's this, the myth out there is that Microsoft missed the web, had to hustle to catch up. But I've also read about, you know, MSN, the project internally, um, had to change as they're doing it, because as they're getting ready to launch, the web is taking off. So yeah. um, tell me about MSN and then moving on to these other So this things. is a bit of a complex story. First of all, Microsoft did not miss the internet. I think Microsoft coulda, shoulda, woulda been a leader in the internet. They made a critical mistake, which in hindsight was easy to make, um, and now they are going to be right 25 years later. And, you know, I, I know a very good um, private equity guy who likes to say early and wrong are the same thing, and everyone that's been an entrepreneur has experienced that. So Microsoft's original approach to 
online was really that um, the Windows franchise would travel around. And, and honestly, what they were seeing was, and this is very rare for Microsoft, was a couple of steps were being skipped. But the whole Internet of Things was really what Microsoft was after. And so there was this massive investment on Windows CE, WINS, the consumer edition, um, to drive lots of different devices and media experiences. And that's really what the company thought would happen. And they were right. They were just off by two decades. While all that was going on, and this is where you know, the, the, the web as we know it was emerging, right? Microsoft was putting enormous resources into their own proprietary language, an authoring tool called Blackbird. Now, the idea behind this was you know, maybe flawed, right? In retrospect, yes, which was you know, they would create an amazing um, authoring tool. They would create an amazing ecosystem with partners really being able, like developers were with Office and Windows, to really leverage this great partner, this platform. And then that would allow them to beat AOL and really dominate in the space. Okay, so right around, um, you know, December or so, I think when Bill wrote the famous internet tidal wave, was the conclusion, and I remember him saying this either in a memo or an email or somewhere, we can't possibly outdevelop the innovation of, you know, the web when it comes to authoring, the standard protocol, and the support that it's going to give developers. Um, it, it didn't realize that that late in the game, you know. And what's interesting is people talk about the internet tidal wave. That, that was a powerful memo. I've got it in my desk drawer right here. And, you know, I don't know how big the company was then, 20,000 or whatever. Um, we turned on a dime. I mean, we really turned. Now, meanwhile, and, and what was interesting was, you know, that unleashed a really good renaissance kind of, 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 of energy because the original plan was probably to do all of these proprietary properties like Expedia and Finance on the authoring tool, which was called Blackbird. And that was just a bad idea, you know? It was just too closed garden. And so as soon as that was unleashed and that internet services business unit shifted from that, you know, I believe what they did is they, they started thinking about web extensions or something. That was the team run by Anthony Bay. Fine group of people. They went and did their thing. And suddenly, the internet experience started to become the primary thing. But MSN, the subscription-based service, which was still in this authoring tool, Blackbird, which was supposed to compete with Rain, which was AOL's tool, um, that, that kept going, right? But obviously my role started to shift. I had already been drawn into a bunch of meetings with MSNBC and Expedia and all these guys were running around explaining to Patty Stonecipher how each of them was going to be, you know, a hundred million dollar ad business. And so I was in a meeting with Patty um, and I showed her how, one, that was not possible. And two, it would take a massive investment. And three, it wasn't like everybody else wasn't thinking that. And Patty, you know, who I really didn't know well and don't really know, um, looked at me and she said, are you telling me that this is all a mistake? And I said, you know, they had just finished Bob, right? And I said, I'm telling you this is an enormous miscalculation. And she said, sorry, Patty, she said, well, I just sat on top of another billion-dollar mistake, so you better get this under control. And that immediately empowered me to take all these disparate groups, because they were all sitting in the room, and start scheduling meetings and start talking about their advertising. Mm -hmm. So that was Expedia and Slate and everything else. 
But that wasn't MSN, because MSN was still doing... So the night of Thanksgiving, I guess this was 1995, I, I, I had a, you know, no girlfriend, no anything, and I was just... Well, I had some girlfriends, but I had no steady girlfriend. I was alone, and um, it was terrible weather in Seattle, and, um, you know, bridges were maybe going to be closed, and the ferries weren't going to go, some windstorm. And I stopped and got a turkey sandwich, and I was thinking about MSN.com, which was about to launch, with no ads, no ad spots at all, which was crazy talk, you know? And it wasn't clear. People were still fighting. Would Windows own the MSN team? Would the Internet team own the MSN.com? You know, who would own MSN.com? And finally, MSN.com, you know, became clear it was going to be a media property. It was going to have news from MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. But it was sort of like... There were no ads, nothing. So I wrote, I sat there, and I slept in the office, and I ate a turkey sandwich, and I, I wrote a 30-page document or so that was a spec. It was a product spec for how to do the ads and what we would use to serve the ads and what the convention would be for service and how page groups, which no one had ever said before, page groups would be the way we would go to market and what the rate card would look like and who we would need to sell it and all this stuff. Um, and I printed it out like late Thursday. I'd been in the office at least 25, 26 hours. And I just dropped it, you know, because, you know, we're still in nascent days of email and file sharing. And I dropped a printed copy on the desk of like 15 or 20 people. And I just wrote a note, you know, please read this. We can't launch MSN without ads. We just can't. And um, we didn't. Yeah. Can I just make a, a funny, like, is this, isn't that indicative of their Microsoft? They've got tons of money. A startup that needs revenue <laughs> would never have made that mistake, right? Right. Although that's a misconception in the go-forward strategy because as soon as we did that, when I first started the IAB, I used to look around the table and my peers, who were good, talented executives, they, they would report back to their companies, you know, if it was Time Warner or whatever. Yeah, well, last month I made $100,000 and this month I made one hundred and fifty. My bosses were like, they wanted to know, again, this was unprecedented, how many impressions were sold. They wanted to see dollars by sector. They wanted to understand my pipeline. They wanted to understand, like, the CPM and something that wasn't yet invented called the effective CPM. They wanted to understand, like, ads that were served with a null set. And they wanted it broken down by, you know, month, by trailing months, by property and the aggregate. There was still no demography, but they wanted all of that. And I used to issue this like 15-page report, and my peers at the IAB were like, what the hell? And I'm like, these guys are hardcore serious about business. So they didn't need the money, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the first advertiser at, at um, the first media buy at MSN, it was a $5,000 media buy for AT&T, and the buyer said, go tell Bill Gates you just sold the ad on MSN. And I said, yeah, because he's probably going to stop making fucking windows right now. <laughs> I, said, Bill Ga- I said to the guy something that was true. I said, Bill Gates wouldn't know me if he ran over me in the parking lot. I am- and he might not recognize $5,000 for right. something to I stop mean, at the time, him. Bill was way, you right. know, he was, making, he was making so much money a day. that, like, So, yeah, so it was a combination of hardcore metrics, but also, yeah, I mean, it wasn't an important business. I mean, you know, I, again... If this is not too anecdotal, when I had my my first real meeting um, to review activities with Steve Ballmer, 
Um, me and my boss went there, and of course, Bomber wanted to know why I was talking to the same people to whom he was selling servers. Hmm. And I had to explain to him, not the same buyer. Like, he didn't understand that. And, and he was like, you're not going to go to my buyers. And I was like, no, I'm not going to go to your buyers. And he stood over my boss, and he started screaming, no, no, no. I do a good Bomber. Yeah. And, and my boss was, like, laughing, because this was Steve's theater. And then he looked at me, and he said come back to my office. So we went back to his office and he said, so in a year, in two years, what are you going to make? And I said, well, you know, Steve, this is a $50 million business. No kidding around. He reached back. I thought he was going to take out his wallet, mm -hmm. right? And tell me to just stop. And he took out a handkerchief and he wiped himself. You know, the guy's voluble mm -hmm. and he's sweaty. And he goes like this. He goes, $50 million, $50 million. And he turns and he screams down the hall at Jeff Rakes, who, you know, is like the head seller. He goes, Rakes! Rakes! This guy here, Gold! And he looks up at me and I said, Goldberg. He goes, Goldberg and Miller over here say they're going to make $50 million. So I guess we're off the hook. And, you know, I just thought, okay, I'm just going to keep working, you know. But, yeah, it was a mixture of we're doing something critical, but it doesn't make a difference. And so... Interesting, interesting time, um, and that's what it was like. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Um... Before was that, that a boring story? Absolutely oh, not. Okay. No. <laughs> I don't know. You're actually really good at this. Um, but before we continue down this road, and I know that you might not have been involved in, in yeah. any of this, but could we just go through some of these properties and yeah. from your recollection of like where the idea came from, yes. who the people were involved? So like, let's start with Slate because there's, yes. there's an obvious one where they're trying to innovate and create a publication online. Yes. And they, they recruit Michael Kinsley, they I believe? They recruit Michael Kinsley. Um, you know, I, I don't really recall how that happened, mm -hmm. but I think that, I think that the, the basic outline I remember of it is that, you know, in order to do something important for consumers, you had to create a new experience. And so a guy by the name of John Williams was the very first publisher. Um, he ended up going to work at Amazon and Starbucks. Um, but Mike came in and, you know, it was fun to watch him in a technology company. Then there was a new publisher by the name of Rogers Weed, who I mentioned before, um, and we brought it to market. And there were big questions. Should it have advertising? Right, right. Right. And so 
um, you know, we tried to make sure that the advertising experience, which at that time was not really, you know, it, it, we sort of had banners and big banners. So we were going with big banners. We, you know, we hadn't, the whole interstitial thing had not yet, we knew we wanted to do it, but it had not yet happened. And so, you know, what we knew was we had a unique property. And so we used to take Mike out and, you know, take him on sales calls. And, you know, Mike himself, as you know, has since written about how at the time he was beginning to suffer from the early stages of Parkinson's. And he has both a certain delightful charm and a certain awkwardness. Um, and what's so fascinating is, you know, like so many people in the public eye, he was two people. He was Crossfire Mike, who was easygoing and relaxed. And then he was kind of, you know, a little bit awkward, sitting in the office, surrounded by geeks, Mike. And I remember when sitting with him in a restaurant, um, waiting for this chief marketing officer of Boeing, and 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 he goes, you know, he said to me in that kind of stilted way, "What can I do?" And I said, "You could be Crossfire, Mike, <laughs> not crazy, sit in your office, hit the return button six times, Mike." And he just like that, he became that guy, and. Uh, and Boeing bought some ads. So that was slight. Huh. Yeah. Um, Expedia is... Rich Barton was internal Microsoft prior to that project, Yeah. So Rich Barton is, you know, unimpeachably brilliant guy. Um, Saw... You know, you meet these people who see something about the experience that people don't get. And before anybody was, like, Ubering and this and that, what Rich understood, and he was the first person I ever heard use this word was Rich was like, we're going to disintermediate the travel agency business. Which, you know, sitting here now, you think about this, and you're like, what an incredibly audacious, you know? And and remember, people are not comfortable. Web penetration is, like, super nascent. I mean, not even, people don't even have computers, right? I mean, this is pre-Windows 95 when he gets this idea. I'm going to tell you something because I was in the library last week looking at some old industry standards and I found a data point, and this is from summer of 99, Yeah, where they're celebrating that online travel booking is approaching 15%. Right. And that's 1999. Right. right. <laughs> you know? So 1995, before Windows launches, right, computers are still not mainstream. They're just not. I mean, people don't have email, Right. As a matter of fact, you know, they made fun of that this year on the Super Bowl. It was 1995 with the whole what is email commercial. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is how nascent the web experience is. People are, there are, you know, I don't know, someone could look it up, but maybe like 10% of people have the capacity to go online and it's a dial-up experience. There's no universally adopted language, protocol, there's nothing. The majority of online experience for consumers is being done on AOL, which is a proprietary language. So along come these guys at Microsoft and say, we're going to use the online experience to disintermediate travel. Well, like, how are you going to do that? With, with what, your friends? Mm-hmm. You know? But that's the difference between Rich Barton and me. And, you know, you know that's why he's Rich Barton. Right, right, and, right. And I'm me. I mean, I've had some good ideas, but... Um, <laughs> I didn't have that. And so, you know, what an amazing thing. So these guys are just like, we're going to make all the money on bookings and all of a sudden. And and so we're sitting there and I'm like, okay, here's what we know about these people. They're obviously upscale. They're obviously savvy. They're obviously engaged consumers. And as you know, Rich, 
they're obviously interested in buying an airline ticket. And he's like, okay. I said, well, that's what's interesting, right? Mm. Now, again, this is before targeting or nobody's got a cookie that's saying, oh, I visited, you know, NewZealand.com and then I visited Australia.com and now there's an enterprise remarketing. None of that. Mm -hmm. It's just a value proposition that's super simple, which is these people, and we didn't use these words, are intenders or lower in the funnel than the majority. And so why not go out and sell ads to, you know, and there was huge debate. Should we sell ads to airlines? Should we not? Are we competing? These debates went on for weeks. But then finally we realized this is great. And also, you know, I was able to explain to people using some syndicated research that people who travel, right, especially people, for instance, who travel internationally, love nice cars. You know, we we were doing the same type of targeting or inferential targeting that's now done in milliseconds, mm -hmm. right, using thousands and thousands of advertisers and parameters and and thousands and thousands of customer profiles, which is really exciting. But back then, we were just like, well, if you want to reach people who travel, and so it's the old-fashioned way that magazines and everyone's been doing it for right. And years. so, you know, how did we make our list? We just looked at travel and leisure, and we saw, mm -hmm. okay, well, these car guys are good, so let's call these car guys, or this clothing store is here, so let's go call them, and that's how Expedia, you know, started getting ads. The, one of the big fights, this has nothing to do with the internet, is Expedia used to send their tickets out by, you know, mail. Mm -hmm. And I used to tease the guys at Expedia because they wouldn't put an ad on the back of the ticket cover, mm -hmm. going back into ancient days of paper tickets and ticket right. covers. And I said, you guys have the only non-commercially supported ticket wallet in the travel agency. Why don't you let me sell this ad? I could sell it exclusively to Avis, make $200,000. They were like... Get out of here. <laughs> Again, what startup would do that today? Right, 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 right. If you can't monetize it, you know, it's like, let's monetize the reception area. Right. Right? Right. But that's what it was like. And, you know, we had a good property with Expedia. They were an aggressive team. Um, they, they were a pain in my ass. Mm -hmm. They wanted to go on every sales call to make sure I would sell Expedia instead of, you know, the news property mm -hmm. or, or, or Slate, which caused some ruffled feelings. But they were smart guys. If you'll indulge me one more, only yeah. because I don't know much about this story. Yeah. Um, MSNBC. I mm -hmm. mean, obviously, this is a big experiment of we'll do offline and online, try to marry mm -hmm. them, you know, all the weird synergies that people right. have been chasing for 20 years. Um, what do yeah. you remember about the, the, the start of that project? Oh, everything. I mean, first of all, MSNBC was a tremendous amount of money spent, and the mm -hmm. partnership got off to a you know, really good start in some ways, but it was a little rocky. I mean, Microsoft was footing the bill for almost all of it, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, cable news in and of itself was pretty early in those days. Right, because that's Fox News launches after MSNBC. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. This is CNN. So this is, CNN's the only game in town at that point, right? Right. And so you've got all those issues. But the online thing is, like, news consumption online was next to nil. You know, I mean, there was nothing there. And... And, you know, at first we had started doing something called MSN News, and that was just like a skunk works operation. It was literally in a break room. Mm. There were like 20 people all sitting together, taking news off of the wires. It was crazy town. Um, but then we made this major investment, built the studio, brought in Merrill Brown, and decided to go for it. I think the big issue 
was that, well, there were a couple of big issues. One, internally, you know, because they were spending a lot of money, uh, they wanted to see a big return. And that was hard because, you know, we're trying to sell online news. Um, it's not a thing. Uh, it, and, you know, the, the people at Microsoft don't understand that just because they put MS next to NBC doesn't mean, you know, my team, who's now got salespeople, can make a sale. I mean, we're like, you know, we're walking in versus Time mm -hmm. Warner. You know, mm -hmm. it's Time Magazine. Um, so internally, there was a lot of strife. Um, the, the management was very hard on me. And uh, on a personal level, I was always like, geez, guys, you know, you're losing like, you know, $20, 30000000 million a month in spend, and you're mad at me because you made, you know, 80000 instead of, you know, 90000 Like, let's stay calm here. Um, they did not stay calm. But I had a really excellent relationship, which continues to this day, with Merrill Brown, who was the editor-in-chief. And, um, and we, just, we just, you know, clicked, and I was able to talk to him about the online ad experience and what it could be. Um, and so we went to market. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the, the powers that be felt, well, let's go to the cable television and media buyers and do this kind of joint pitch. And so I'm running around New York with this guy who's still in the business named John Spaeth. He's a good cable sales guy, you know, and he's a good sales guy and he's a good guy. And the two of us are going to visit agencies that I, you know, like Y&R that I worked in 15 years ago. And it is, they're the worst and most stupid sales calls. There are no online buyers. Mm -hmm. And the cable TV or TV buyers have, I would say, zero interest yeah they have zero interest and John and I are like you know we're just like going to these meetings talking to just blank faces who these are not people that use online because they don't even have computers they don't believe in the adoption curve they don't understand the consumption right and we're walking around New York or sitting in diners thinking well this is never gonna work and the joint call part is not gonna make it work either and it's especially not going to work because our competitors at, you know, time or whatever are just bundling it in. But I'm not allowed to do that. You're My not. team, no, no, because I can't do that. Because I, mean, I, I, I would think that would be a logical pitch for you is to say, hey, well, you, you're not familiar with online. Go with us. You'll get your TV. But you also can do some experimenting with online as I'm well. sure on episode 77 you've heard this, but not everything that's logical gets mm -hmm. enacted. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, remember, again, that's why I mentioned the internal problem. So Peter Newport and his team are P&L guys. And if I bundle an ad, I'm eroding the P&L. Now, that's why their spend was higher. But that's why they were so exercised about this. And these are powerful personalities. And with, you know, I, I don't know how long Peter knew Bill Gates and Pete Higgins, who was, you know, our division head. But it was a very long time. And they had a lot of credibility. And so they would routinely, it was like whack-a-mole every single month. And then you're out on the street. This is what my job was like. You're out on the street trying to sell this, but you can't just give it away. And media buyers are saying, listen, throw it in with a cable spot and we'll take it. So that's not working. And then you get on a plane, you go back to Seattle, and you know the National Newspaper Association comes in. And with a totally straight face, I have to say to this woman, who's their spokesperson or representative, you really need to work with us because otherwise our business is going to kill your business. And she's thinking, 
arrogant Microsoft son of a bitch. These guys are, you know, the evil. And, and I'm thinking, oh, please, please listen, right? And so here we are now in 2015, and, you know, I, I, all of my clients are newspaper companies like Tribune and Velo. And man, I mean, I look back in those days and I think, what an interesting triangle of experience. Ad buyers who could have cared less, and we had a product that wasn't competitive because we had to charge. A group of hard-charging executives at Microsoft that had to see a result, even though it's a company with more cash and more resources than anything. And an overall news industry that needs to really understand that sort of like, you know, www.healthcare.gov, it's gonna work out. Mm -hmm. But they're looking at what they're seeing and saying, no, this is we're not going to work with you. You guys go your own way. Did didn't that evolve though quickly? I mean, I no. I know that you 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 leave by the end of the decade, but yeah. but certainly at some point people are get start to get the Kool Aid, yeah, and start to you know yeah. we got to have an online strategy and things like that. But yeah, but yeah. this is before that, right. and okay. and again, you know, this is where the IAB that mm -hmm. whole thing comes mm -hmm. in. But people did not people. You, you know, remember that like most demos that are done are not done online. Mm -hmm. When we were showing people MSN, they thought it was a canned demo, right? Mm -hmm. And what we would do, there's no wireless in agencies, there's none of that. You don't have a computer with wirelesses. We would do a dial-in to show them this. Mm -hmm. We used to have a saying, do a demo, lose a sale. Because, you know, there we are relying on the infrastructure of an ad agency. Mm -hmm. But we would still do it. But the majority of media buying and selling around the web then was canned stuff. I mean, I have in the office, I have, you know, Microsoft Network's first rate card printed beautifully and in a notebook because you couldn't give it to people online because they weren't online. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, for your listeners, the, you know, the 70% who have never grown up without the internet, I, I, I think that what's really interesting is imagine selling a medium that isn't consumed by anybody who's buying it. Mm. Imagine the challenge of that. Mm -hmm. That's unique, right? Nobody does that anymore, right? I, I, I don't think anybody goes to market with a product that nobody's experienced. Maybe the guys who sell ads in elevators. Maybe the guys that are selling Snapchat right now because Maybe. all the old people aren't using Snapchat. So they, but, but conceptually, people understand online they, Right, sure. They would, know what, right, they would know the ballpark of what you're talking about. You know, I mean, for younger people, one of the things, I mean, you can see this. And, you know, I used to be a professor, so I like to tell people these mm -hmm. stories. Walk around the streets of New York and watch, you know, the finance bros or the ad bros or the women, none of them have briefcases anymore. I no longer carry a briefcase. I just carry a laptop. Well, we used to all have briefcases because you had to review things. We just didn't have computers. So here it is, 1995, 96, 97, and it's not that we're trying, it's not that people don't understand that news can be online. They simply don't have an online experience. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you meet 100 media buyers, right, Maybe five of them have a computer. Mm -hmm. Maybe one of them has a laptop, but that's doubtful, mm -hmm. right? Maybe none of them have an online experience, and none of them have been online, right? Why would they buy news online? Mm -hmm. And again, this seems incredible, but, you know, everybody, and you've heard this, I'm sure, from others, everybody in this generation overestimated the impact of online and the web in the short term and underestimated it in the long term.
And so we are talking about beyond science fiction. We're talking about paradigms and constructs that people couldn't wrap their brains around. It's like quantum physics. It just, now it seems obvious, right? You want something, you pick up your smartphone, you order a cab. We didn't have smartphones, right? It just, it's just, it's a collision, right? It's just a collision. It's probably like showing a jet engine to like a Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. What? I think we should, I want to stipulate that we're not going to go in chronology for um, your career right now because it's around this time that you leave, start the IAB. We'll come come back to that. Well, I stay and start the IAB. Right, right, right. Um, Let's let's finish up with with Microsoft by stipulating. So you put them on a path to only, until only recently, Microsoft has spent the last 15 years with a really large uh, advertising and media business. Yeah. um, You know, at... You know, in the in the portal era, MSN.com yeah. becomes you yeah. know the one of the top three portals. You're hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising across all these different properties and things Correct. like that. Um, I don't like the phrase "I put them on path." Um, you, I, I'm not you and the, and the people, people who at know the time. me know that I am far from you a old guy. I really am very far. I've got an ego the size of this room, but I was there um, and had the honor to work with some super people who all together put them on the path. I just happen to be standing in the right place. Are, are you willing to hazard a bit of punditry? Yes. Can we talk about Microsoft and its relationship with advertising as a business? Mm-hmm. With, um, you know, recently the news they're getting out of the advertising business. Yeah. Um, there's the whole story that's, you know, beyond our chronology here about, you know, they see Google come in and create this amazing yes. advertising business and, and you know, They've spent the last 10 years, 15 years trying to fix that problem, compete. What do you think uh, – did Microsoft ever really understand advertising as an industry? Yeah. I think that you know they hired the people who understood um, the, the agency business um, and media. It took a long time. I mean, we were fish out of water – we were a small little happy group. I'm, I'm sure you can imagine um, recently when this news came out, you know, some of us were quoted and I, I was in a bunch of articles. Um, but then I, I was struck by, you know, those crazy happy days. And I sent a mail out to about 20 people who had been either on my team or, you know, on my boss and, and, um, and just said, wow, wasn't that a trip, you know? Um, it's funny to think that a business that large again if I were to be egotistical I would say I I will tell you things that are true which is I did sell the first ads and I did write the first product specification for msn.com and I did by myself will that thing into existence in a way right because that moment where I sat there on Thanksgiving while everybody else was doing whatever they were doing and wrote this document which was the seminal document get them into advertising on the web um, you know despite what I said before I, I believe that that was a core contribution to what they were doing mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say I put them on the path so in some of those articles not you yeah. but other people said that the Google guys are engineers but when they learn that advertising is where they're going to make their money they embrace it um, and other people have said that you know when you look at things like missing out on the double click mm-hmm. And going with a quantum instead, mm-hmm. 
it seems like that maybe Microsoft never fully grokked how advertising was going to tie in with they were originally a software company and and all the all engineering and stuff that they're doing and like this was always sort of something that they were holding over here at arm's length do you agree with that or no. i think i think it, there's a word i don't i don't know if i use it right called recursive mm-hmm. hindsight is recursive you mm-hmm. know um I, I think that um i think that that is a misunderstanding of both Microsoft and Google and what happened. Um, and again, a lot of this is my observation from the outside. But, you know, it, it, first of all, paid search, you know, that was a breakthrough for Google. And I think that it's their approach to it was they approached the media business. I think this is the irony of people who say that. They approached the media business like engineers. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft was trying. They didn't give a damn about mm-hmm. embracing the business. They could have cared less. Mm-hmm. They, they, they had a pricing model that was different. They had a product that was different. They had a you know, FU attitude to the marketers that was just sort of, we're going to be here and we're going to be the world's biggest search engine and you're coming along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And nothing they did was advertiser-friendly. I mean, they had people working their asses off for search engine optimization and then they would say, oh, we're going to put a big bad right above all the search engine optimization. So thank you very much for optimizing to this platform. Right, but um, I have an idea. Um, we're going to put this big ad here, and if you don't buy it, your competitors will be on it. So they were not advertiser friendly, and I don't think they got the advertising industry, and I don't think they gave shit. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, on the other hand, was trying to get the ad agency business mm-hmm. and was doing friendlier things, and and but not always doing them well. Right? But there was a constant dialogue about what is good for advertisers. Hmm. I don't think people at, at Google really gave a damn hmm. right? in the very early days. Mm-hmm. The, the double click and, um, and the quantitative thing, that, you know, Microsoft could have, should have, would have bought that. Um, they didn't, it's not like they said, we don't want it. It's like they didn't want to pay what those guys wanted. And then they were playing from a position of weakness. And that's basically the whole story. It, the, a quote that is attributable to you is um, you said that search was a war that Microsoft couldn't win. And so when you say that, should they not have fought in that war? Should they have? Well, it's hard to tell a company that's a powerhouse and that wants to be a, a continuing powerhouse, don't fight a war you can't win. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, again, it's, I I love search marketing. I make a tremendous amount of my business on search engine marketing and search engine optimization. It's a really important tool. It's great. But I believe in my heart that um, when I say they couldn't win, their market position was too weak. And unlike how they won in the application business, there was not a way for them to do anything other than incrementally gain ground. And in some ways they did that, you know, some good stuff, Bing, this, that, and the other thing. But they were never gonna, they were never gonna take Google away from that. They just, they were never gonna do that. And so what I meant by that was it was a pretty tremendous resource suck, and um, and and maybe you know hurt them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, in a funny way, uh, you were there around the same time that they were starting their first chasing because MSN really never caught up with AOL. Not that that mattered in the end, but 
um, you know, the Zoom <laughs> never caught up with the yeah. with the, the right. iPod and yeah. Yeah, I mean, although again, you know, I, I would argue there was a time where I know MSN. BC did catch up, and obviously Expedia won, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you know people forget that stuff. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of wins, and and the other thing people forget is you know people, Microsoft takes a big chunk for not being innovative and everything else, right? But you know, Microsoft has started a whole bunch of multi-billion-dollar businesses from scratch. Now. YouTube and DoubleClick are multi-million dollar businesses, but has Google really started any multi-million dollar businesses from scratch? Whereas Microsoft, you know, with the exception of buying PowerPoint, right, they just willed the office suite into existence sequentially after Windows. The ad business, whether it's good or bad or whatever feeling you have, became a billion dollar business. Microsoft created a billion dollar hardware business first on, you know, Keyboards and then in gaming, mm-hmm. out of nowhere, mm-hmm. out of nowhere. So when you look at this, and now the server business, Microsoft has, I would argue, possibly, you know, a richer history of creating massive businesses than any other company out there, with the exception of Apple. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and no knock on Google, right. right? But you know, show me something, man. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Show me something, because you bought your second business biggest and third biggest business. Now again, kudos to you that even though you were the runaway search leader, you managed to become the runaway video leader and runaway in some ways display leader. That shows, you know, that you guys were using your lead to think about the right things when Microsoft was using their deficit to think about the wrong things. So I said we were going to jump around. Yeah. It's time to jump back to IAB. Okay. We're back at the very, very beginning of advertising on the web. Yes. And so I guess it's just, hey, we need to we need to standardize this stuff. We need to all get on the same page. No. It's not like that. It is not. No. It is. Tell me how the idea comes about. Well, there's a guy whose name I don't remember, and he's a nice guy and he's a journalist, and I think he works at Adweek, but maybe Ad Age, or Mm -hmm. who the hell knows what. And he writes an article and he says, Online needs a trade organization. So it's 9 o'clock at night, and I'm in my office. And by the way, the IAB probably has a 1,000 origination myths, but you know anybody that's listening, um, beat this one, because <laughs> this one is the truth, okay? And, and again, we're going to talk about some amazing people, Rich Lafergy, Rishi Glassberg, Leslie Laredo, who did awesome work, Kate Thorpe. But honestly, this is how the IAB started. So I read this article, and it's late at night. And, you know, it's 9, and it's the West Coast, so... I have to reach out to somebody, right? And um, because I'm thinking, this is like a great idea. So I think, who's going to be in their office? And the person who I come up with is Halsey Miner, who's the CEO of CNET. Has been on the show, yep. And I write Halsey a note, just an email that says, hey, and remember, there's no links, so I probably cut and pasted the article, or I might have, I don't know what I did. And I said, this is a really awesome idea. What do you think about starting a trade organization? Now, honestly, part of this is, you know, I think Halsey's a smart guy, and to be totally blunt, I just want to hang out with him more, you know? And I know his life isn't perfect right now, but I'm like, he's cool. I like the glasses, I like the haircut, the whole thing. And about two seconds later, he writes back, awesome idea or something along those lines. I'm going to connect you with Kate Everett, who now is Kate Thorpe, who's my evangelist, right, for online advertising. 
So immediately, the first thing I do, no kidding around, is I open up a rack at Microsoft for an evangelist, because I think if Halsey's got one, I need one. And I immediately make plans to do that. And then I start <laughs> reaching in. No, and, and we yeah. did. We had some good evangelists yeah. whose job was just evangelize the medium. Cool stuff. So I reach out to Kate, and she and I realize we're going to be at a Jupiter conference together on February 27th. I remember this date because it's my birthday. And so this is February 27th, 1996, my 35th birthday. And I'm mostly going to throw a party in New York, right, at the Flying Shrimp or whatever that thing's called. Mm -hmm. So we're at the conference, and we sit down to have lunch. But I decide to bring with me some people I know, and she decides to bring with her some people she knows. So there are now a bunch of people around the table. Richie Glassberg, Scott Schiller, these guys all have big jobs now. Um, we're all just like these dudes trying to sell ads inside big media organizations. And we decide over lunch at, I think it was the Hilton, yeah, it was the Hilton, this is a great idea. Let's have an association. You know, we'll call it the association. We have no idea what we're going to call it. And now Scott Schiller and Richie Glassberg and I start walking around the conference looking for people who we think are smart ask them if they want to, you know, come to the meeting. And so it's like, let's put on a show. And we see this guy making a speech, Rich Lafergie, and he's got this speech called Know the Code. I have no idea what it's about. And, and we say, well, Rich is a really smart guy, which turned out to be correct. And we go over to him and we say, hey, we're starting the thing, the trade association. Are you in? And Rich was from Seattle, right, because mm -hmm. he worked at Starwave. And he's like, I'm in. So about a month later, um, and that's when we decided to have the IAB. And then, oh, and at my birthday party that night, I invited everybody, and we talked about, well, what would this organization do, you know? And we really had no clue. I don't think anybody said standardize the banners or any of the things we did in the first year. So, um, so that was it. And then about a month later, we had a meeting of about 40 people, like a working group, and Kate um, and Halsey were great. They let us use the CNET studio. And that's when we decided, yep, we're an organization. Mm -hmm. And you know, then we met in New York, and we formed the IAB, and um, we elected a board, which was us. And <laughs> you know, and then we had our very first ever general meeting. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was the MC of the general meeting. Interestingly, it's hysterically funny. It was the Internet Advertising Bureau, but I kept calling it the Interactive Advertising mm. Bureau on stage. And you can get the transcript, and I kept making that mistake. I was like, interactive, interactive. And I went backstage, and I think it was Lafergie said to me, it's the Internet Advertising Bureau. <laughs> and if I was a genius, I would have said, not for long. <laughs> but that's how, and that was it. And that's how we started um, the whole thing. And it wasn't so, like it was some grand design. Well, Okay, because it sure looks like, I mean, clearly that was something that was going to be necessary. Eventually, um, you, do, you guys do standardize things like banners. And, well, my boss and, said to me when I had my review, I had an excellent review because we were crushing mm -hmm. it. And my boss said, my one criticism is, I don't know why you're spending all this time mm -hmm. on that organization. Mm -hmm. What's it called? And he wrote it down. Mm -hmm. And I used to keep that framed. I was, like, very proud of that. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess in the first couple of meetings... We looked at standardization. Um, I think your listeners would be amazed at how we reached the standardization. Well, we looked at all the sizes, and there were so many sizes. And um, Richie Glassberg, in you know, in what I call one of the great Chauncey Gardner moments, um, went, "Well, 
Netscape sells the most banners, so why don't we just adopt their sizes? And we all looked around and said, Richie, that's an excellent idea. Mm -hmm. And that's how banners got standardized, right there. <laughs> that was it. And also, because I was fascinated by this um, in the episodes on the first banner ads, everything is so different because of bandwidth constraints, but also the screens. The yeah. screen sizes are so different than what we, yeah. you know, are, is standard today. So, you know, those right. those original ads were teeny tiny in all sorts of ways. Right, and they were they there were si there were a lot of size limitations, um, and you know, not only screens but platforms. Because if you wanted to do an animated GIF or whatever, or GIF or whatever it was, you had to really make your decision of whether or not people um, would be able to see that, or if it would just serve no. And you know harder than the banners was just trying to deal with is it an ad when it leaves the server or is it an ad based on you know it, that all of that was unknown well and also things like counting and and yeah. analytics and and all the things that are you know everyone understands today but you know reporting and and getting accurate reporting and delivering accurate reporting to to the clients and things like that now our what happened was our sales team wanted to win there and we felt well we should win we're Microsoft so we came up we called Pricewaterhouse Coopers and we asked them to come in and audit our ad server and ad serving processes so that we could send an audit report to advertisers which no you know because there was no reliable remember there's no advertise there's no agency ad server right there's no um, you know double click for advertisers DFA is a pipe dream double click is just starting at the time and Honest to God, they're just manually doing what they say they do, um, but there's nothing for advertisers. And so, you know, we had the problem of, you know, FTPing ads and what to name the ads and how to put them. And every single one of those processes was drawn out by the guy who worked um, on our operations and me, Mitch Goldman, and and we brought in PwC, which I'll come back to, and we had them create an auditable way of us saying that. When we said we served a million ads, we served a million ads. And that became a key value proposition in how we competed. And it was good. You know, it was, it was good. It was really good stuff. Um, totally unnecessary now, mm -hmm. right? But implicit in that was we had to make some hard decisions about, you know, is it, isn't an ad when it leaves our server? Isn't, and so all these things like viewability, counting, truing up, they were all part of the dialogue, but the technology wasn't standard. And the, you know, the interests were not, were divided. And so it was a bit of a Wild West show. Um, it was cool. Um, but then I, I brought up PwC, and I was hoping you would ask me why. So Please, okay. I'm curious. So this one I will take full credit for. So I love the guys at PwC. I Pricewaterhouse. Yes, yes, I thought they were cool guys. And, and I took a partner there by the name of Tom Highland out to lunch. And it's now run by a guy by the name of Russ Sapienza. He might have been there. And Tom Hyland, who was a genius of a guy who knew nothing about online, said to me, this IAB thing, what you should do is figure out how much money is spent in the industry and then report that. And I'm like, very naive, I'm like, why would we do that? And he said, um, because it'll give confidence to the industry. You know, okay. So the next board meeting, I made this suggestion, and that is how the IAB's revenue tracking mission evolved. It became a big thing. Um, just like Richie was the, really the guy, I believe, who standardized banners, 
internet revenue reporting. That one's me. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was interesting because it was small. I mean, we were like, oh look, nineteen million dollars. Right, right, right. <laughs> look at us. What a big industry. Um, so that's that was those were some of the things we dealt with in the early days. A big question at the IAB was: Do we let advertisers in, agencies? Or do we let technology companies in, or do we just have publishers? Because we were very, very suspicious of of iPro. This is before it was bought by Nielsen. Mm-hmm. We felt that they were um, a bullshit organization, um, and they were. Mm-hmm. We felt that we felt that they were just doing the tracking to create a database which they secretly in little print owned and they were going to use that database to make their real money and so we were not fans um, and you know there weren't many tech companies but we just we wanted people to be publishers we took agencies because we needed the money we just couldn't we couldn't make the organization work unless we took agencies as members so we did but I remember fighting that one hard really hard Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump around again, but okay. you've made me think of something that I've had discussions with other people about. There's diff- people on, on different sides of this. I'm talking about the dot-com bust now. Mm-hmm. Some people say, um, oh, we realized advertising didn't work, and so we stopped doing it. That was the beginning of the bust. We pulled out our advertising. Other people say to me, oh, no, it's that the advertisers started to die, and so all of our, our advertising money was there... It, around the, the, the bust period, was there a sense that maybe advertising on the internet was broken and wasn't working and wasn't actually delivering? I don't think that's true. I, I don't think that's true at all. I think what made it a bust was that, you know, when we started MSN, I mean, our rate card, our, our CPM for MSNBC was $47. Mm. Our CPM for MSN was like $27. Well, and CNET is famously shopping around $100 $130 yeah. CPMs. Yeah. yeah, which in some ways made sense. And CNET's the guys who pretty much made that mm. argument um, inappropriate. Again, now I've said some very nice things about CNET. I think what happened looks like this. Mm. I think that, that CNET was going public early. I think that they... If they had had static banners, they wouldn't have had a very interesting story. So they talked about rotating the banners so that each page view had its own ad instead of the way a lot of people were doing it back then, which is you buy Thursday. And the you buy Thursday, you know, that's very appealing to big advertisers. But again, good idea, too early. Um, Big advertisers didn't care. And so CNET, um, CNET decided that, you know, if you rotate the banners... You one, you have a, a much bigger story to tell, right? Because your inventory at that high CPM is going to be worth more money, especially if you target it. But the problem was there was no targeting technology, and there wasn't enough of an audience to target against. So that was kind of flawed. But everybody liked that idea, so everybody started rotating banners under the guise of we're going to target. But there was no support for that. So once banners started to rotate. You went from having, you know, MSN when we launched had like 21 ads, mm-hmm. right? A couple of hours a day. Suddenly you had ads that equaled page views. And then, God forbid, the even worse thing, you had ads that equal page views times two because you put two ads up or three ads up or four ads up. Whether it worked or didn't work didn't matter. The business model stopped working because they destroyed the supply and demand inequity. They just wiped it out. 
And even the targeting that was available at the time could never save that mm -hmm. because it wasn't, there weren't enough advertisers to make use of it. You know, the, 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 the concept of one-to-one -one marketing is an awesomely interesting concept, but that's when you have thousands of advertisers. Right. If you don't have thousands of advertisers, it's just dumb. Right. Right. And so for me personally, it was a very frustrating time because I used to walk around and say, listen, at the moment, right? And, and this is, you know, I was very smart, but I was also very dumb, right? I used to say, what you're talking about, it doesn't matter to marketers right now. And, and I'm probably, because it's 20 years down the road, adding the right now to make myself sound smart. Mm -hmm. I probably was standing there screaming, it doesn't matter to marketers, and it never will, mm. right? Because it just, marketers bought by time of day, day of week, week of year. That's what jazzed them. That's all that jazzed them. And so the concept of this, you know, we're going to use technology that doesn't really exist to create these profile, it just made no sense um, until one day it did. Mm -hmm. But that's what got ahead of the skis, right, mm -hmm. is that whether it worked or didn't work, the bust was is that when you take a $6 CPM and make it a dollar CPM, your business model just evaporates. It just falls apart. Mm -hmm. So some businesses weren't working because they were ahead of the curve on customer, customer adoption of e-commerce, etc. But a lot of the ad-based businesses, they, they had raised money and were workable on a $20 CPM, mm -hmm. not a $2 CPM. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And other people have told me that it is the portalization, it is all of a sudden... Yahoo having you know inventory of 240 billion page views that drove those prices down and, and caused that sort of a bust. Is, is that what you're saying? Is that that yeah. they're getting ahead of the game in that sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then nobody had price discipline, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? It probably here's the interesting thing. I mean, again, this is it's so easy to be smart 20 years later. That level of destruction, that level of carnage, was probably like a prototype that we all needed to enjoy the cool shit that's going on today. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was, it was shameful and sad and unnecessary. Who knows if that web had emerged, right? If people had been able to use price discipline and static advertising and you know page group and location and exclusivity and time of day targeting, the web would have emerged first and looked much more like traditional media probably a lot of people who are now, you know, bankers and chefs or whatever would still work in the web, but it might not be as good as it is today. And so it's a good or a bad, I really don't know, but what I do know is that 
that what happened was, and you were talking about Google before, a bunch of engineering types decided that they could create a better product, but they didn't have adoption on either side of the ecosystem, and they didn't understand how to create that dislocation in the minds of media buyers. And that still exists today. Mm-hmm. It's easier as a media buyer to buy a TV spot than, you know. And so they misunderstood how they were going to capture the dollars. And we still see that today. There was an article just, you know, Aaron Griffin at, at Fortune Magazine yesterday was talking about how, you know, there's such a flaw in in Cheryl um, um, Sandberg. Thank you. Cheryl Sandberg's argument that, you know, Facebook can grow because people spend more time on Facebook than their share of dollars. Mm -hmm. And Mary Meeker uses that argument for mobile. It's such an engineering-based argument. It's ridiculous. It's not how much time you spend. It's the quality of who you are and the quality of the time you spend and the engagement you have and where you are in your buying cycle. Otherwise, advertising is just noise. So when the engineers got a hold of it, and this is not Microsoft and this is not Google, but it's everybody. They kind of forgot what advertising is really about, even though they thought they understood it. And they thought, why create scarcity when we can create value? Hmm. And that's corrupt and broken. Hmm. Because if you don't have a really strong auction system, you, you, you don't have value. There's nothing for it to be built on. Does that make sense? It do, it makes total sense. Okay. I, I I I'm I'm feeling bad because we're gonna kind of elide over <laughs> we're gonna the what? rest of your career. Oh, no. But we're approaching an hour and a half here, so I don't want to tax our, our. That's let's, okay. Let's wrap it up with. We'll, that we'll was do, the interesting. We'll part. do three things: two okay. two kind of blue sky questions. Yeah. And then we'll we'll bring it right up to today. Okay. Um, first blue sky is you mentioned um, you know when the IAB first starts to track. Um, how big yeah. the industry is. Yeah. You might know better than me. Like, where are we? How big is, is digital advertising now? We're approaching what? How many? $100 billion. Right, $100 billion. Yeah. So, being 20 years on and, and yeah. being involved in so many different ways at the very birth of this, yeah. um, 20 years ago, did you see no. we'd be sitting at a $100 billion industry? No. Or did you see it could have been bigger? <laughs> no. Or Again, I think what's important for people is that. I think that one of the interesting things about people today and young people is that the ability to see massive potential um, has been inculcated in people's brains in a way that makes them not so much unique but excellent. Whereas back in the day, a guy like Rich Barton or Bill Gates was both excellent and unique. I come from a generation where you're not trained to think about infinite possibilities. You know, I'm a child of a depression family. I, I, I come from a generation of people where you, 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 unless you're an incredible innovator, like, you know, people who your listeners have heard of, you know, Bill or, or Steve Jobs or whatever, you really just think, you know, let's play station-to-station baseball. So not only did nobody ever ask how big this will be in 20 years but the people around the table from my perspective didn't give a rat's ass we were just trying to get to first base and second base and I think one of the great things today is I know that I've trained myself to think about you know blue sky potential and I get better at it every day but some of the 
you know, some of the best things in our lives is that we, because of technology, we have generation of people where that is a common way of approaching a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, maybe my generation produces one Bill Gates or one Steve Jobs, but next generation produces like, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg and a Cheryl and all these people. And in 20 years, we're going to have more audacity and more creativity. I just, I would have laughed at your question. Mm. I really would have. Mm. I would have made some Jewish guy from New York joke. Well, who knows? We'll all be dead then. <laughs> you just you just don't know. So, I don't know. All right, this is an even more unfair blue sky question. Yeah. But you've been through it all from the beginning to bust to Google reinventing the whole, the whole wheel almost um, to now into social. Mm-hmm. And now we're at a, a completely different medium shift onto mobile. Where are we going? What is what is the state of digital advertising today? Is it healthy? Is it? Um, are there still a lot of things that could be done better? Any anything along? Okay. Well, those are three questions. Right. Yeah. Um, where is the state of it today? Is it's growing, and I would argue that it's both its prevalence and the adoption of the medium makes a lot of yesterday's ideas um, that were foolish and dead ends uh, have a little bit more potential. Um, So that's what I would say. Is it healthy? I think it's very healthy. Um, I think that, you know, like everything else, it's got these horrible challenges. Viewability is ridiculous. Um, It's always been ridiculous. It's always been there. The revisionist history is like, you know, I love when agencies say, oh, we built it into the price. My challenge is, I've made this challenge before um, on on several trade magazines, which is I I challenge any media director or senior media person to please show me the spreadsheet or calculation where it was built in. And as I've said before, I will take you out to dinner at Per Se or whatever restaurant (laughs) of your choice if you can produce one shred of documented evidence that you knew about this or even a shred about ad fraud. So, you know, for all your listeners who are in the media business, um, cut it out. Okay, we were all there, and you didn't know it, and that's that. Um, So there are these issues. Fraud is big. But here's why I think it's healthy. And, and, you know, prices are too low. Uh I think it's healthy because ultimately the, the dream of targeting, while it comes with some downsides, has finally been realized where you really can create some, I don't want to use the word delightful because that's a stupid word for advertising, but you can create some very thoughtful and purposeful experiences for marketers. And the fact that we're testing the boundaries of whether or not you've gone too far is just a healthy growth. Um, you know, you go to Sur La Table and you look at a paella recipe and 10 minutes later, the, like your Facebook stream has, you know, paella pans on mm-hmm, it. From, mm-hmm. the, that is, that is a sign of a certain type of healthiness. We'll work it out, but that's moving forward and creating an experience that really is that win-win-win people wanted. So I think that we've, in some ways, you know, fallen behind, but we've achieved a very good beginning for creating a heightened marketing experience. Now we, not, you know, we have to start pulling it back, right? But I think you see that in the whole internet. You know, it's like today's, all that stuff, you know, Gawker and Reddit are getting responsible, right? Everybody grows up. 
mm-hmm. you know, our, our president, who I happen to think is very fine, you know, there but for the grace of God, as he said. You know, I went to college with a guy, and I'm sure, you know, um, you know, he wasn't that spectacular then. I believe that people said he was smoking a little dope, mm-hmm. snorting a little blow, and all this stuff. People grow up. Mm-hmm. Now he's the leader, the leader of the free world. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a big optimist, and I think we put ourselves on the pathway mm-hmm. um, to do even more, take even more dollars, and get a proportional share of the dollars, which is about all I'd say about the third part of your question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the future is bright enough to wear shades. And so that's it. <laughs> well, especially if it's going to be virtual reality, we're going to. Need I don't to... even begin to understand. <laughs> that. Uh, all right, let's end with um, what you specifically are doing today with with Empirical yeah. Media Associates and, and like what you're yeah. working on and what you're excited about. Well, I'm excited about what I'm working on. So, yeah. um, over the last two years, um, Empirical, which works with media companies across a wide range of issues, both traditional and digital. Um, over the last few years, as part of Empirical, I've been helping some very large, very successful, and sometimes very struggling media companies um, as the managing director of the digital practice. And so we help um, both on the consumer experience, the you know B2C side, but what I focus on is the B2B side. And so I've been helping um, some pretty big brands. Uh, deal with how to create a a more fulsome revenue program. Uh, I also help them with compensation, with processes, with go-to-market. The call that interrupted us was a a, a search for an advertising product manager for one of my clients. Um, Send me mail if you you can do that for a major (laughs) newspaper. Um, And so what I'm trying to do is is help them realize their full potential um, in digital services, marketing, and advertising by creating products, processes, go-to-market, organizational design that gives them more of a chance to be successful. Um, It's exciting work because we really don't want newspapers to go away. Mm -hmm. I promise we don't. Um, And and, we don't want the news they produce to go away, even if the newspapers go away. And so that's how I spend my days. And uh, it's great. It's really great. Um, Steve Goldberg, I appreciate so much uh, the time that you've given us and just remembering all that stuff for us. It's, it's a fantastic conversation. It was a blast, so thank you. I really appreciate the time. So, as often happens when I do these interviews, Steve and I kept talking off mic. And some of the stories he was reeling off were so good that I hit record again And thankfully, he allowed me to include these stories here. So here you go. Two extra anecdotes here at the end. A bit of commentary track bonus, as it were. I was sitting in my office one day, and 1995, in like December 18th, so like 12 days after the internet memo, and the marketing director of IBM, no, the marketing director of the NFL called me up and said, she said, can you get 100,000 discs with Internet Explorer mm. to the Super Bowl on the day before the Super Bowl, which is like 30 days away? And I said, yes, yes, I can. I had no idea how I was going to do that. I wasn't on the Internet Explorer team. I just thought, they're a client, and this is a marketing opportunity. And then, you know, I sheepishly went over to Yusuf Mehdi, who was, you know, was at the time just a guy in the internet team who became such a giant in the business. And I remember when I told him I'm going to do this, he, I, 
I, I don't remember exactly what his reaction was, but I'm sure he threw something at me or threw me. <laughs> but we did it. We got it done. And we were able to put ads on there. And mm -hmm. MSN got on there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was awesome. But that's the kind of thing we were doing. Yeah. Once the guys at Windows went to Bill Gates and they said, listen, we shouldn't take any ads from any marketers who haven't optimized their site for um, IE. And I was like, this is stupid. And Bill was leaning towards it. Mm -hmm. And it was one of these things where, you know, at the time, Bill was a giant. And to see his name in your inbox was scary, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, if it wasn't, you know, announcing United Way campaign. Right. And these mails are coming back and forth with Bomber and Gates and Herbal. And I'm like, I'm like sitting in my office, like, which I share with someone, terrified mm -hmm. that they're going to realize that I'm the one pushing back. And Bill says, you know what? This is a good idea. Let's do this. Um, and and if they, they can be optimized for both, but they have to be optimized. Right? So I get really upset because I think this is going to keep me from making my number. And I'm a company guy, but man, mm. you're pissing me off, Bill Gates. <laughs> as though he were like, you know, a guy I knew, you know, I knew yeah, all yeah. of once. So I got my whole team together and I called them and it was a Friday night, Friday afternoon, and I said, listen. You go through all the marketers you can find, A through F. You go through all the marketers, you know, F through whatever, and G through whatever. And they all went out, and they came back with a spreadsheet. And over the weekend, Bill had sent this mail that said, I am sure that it's probably like 15% mm. of the marketers haven't optimized for us as well as them, or just for us. So this is not going to hurt us. And I'm thinking, ha ha, I've got a team. I'm gonna. So they come back, and it comes in at 12.5 percent. Mm -hmm. And so we did that. We said we're not taking your ads unless you optimize. Um, and I don't know if that story has any place in what you're doing, but I remember thinking, man, that guy's smart. Because <laughs> he had those numbers in his head. I have no idea. Yeah, I yeah. think he did. So yeah. yeah, that was a big, big fight. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to us on your podcast app of choice. There's plenty more great internet history where that came from. And if you're a longtime listener, then you know what to do to help us out. Rate and review us on iTunes. Because iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more great reviews we get, the more people will discover us. As always, there's more info on our website, www.internethistorypodcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. 
Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.